Bonjour tout le monde, nous sommes en Acadie pour la deuxième fois. Hey everybody, welcome back to the GeoTrek podcast. We're back in Acadiana, that French-speaking part of Louisiana, for a second podcast with award-winning meteorologist Rob Perillo. In the first podcast, and if you haven't listened to last week's episode, really listen to it. It's the journey of how Rob Perillo went from New York State, where he grew up and studied meteorology, all the way down to the Gulf Coast, where he did some work in Houston, and eventually over to Lafayette, Louisiana, where he's been doing meteorology for more than 30 years. He's won a lot of awards, and he shared a lot of insights with us on how to predict the weather and how to communicate those forecasts with his audience. It was a great podcast episode last week. This week, we're doing a part two. There was so much substance to this, we thought this is really a two-part episode. This week, we'll be talking about advice on navigating the overwhelming world of social media, not only for weather forecasters, but I think for any science communicators, they'll find a lot of good substance in this conversation. We're also going to talk about the importance of humanizing weather forecasts and science communication really bringing that forecast into impacts for people and helping them understand what this means for them and their community. And then finally, we'll be talking about personal responsibility, about how people really need to stay tuned to changing weather forecast, weather forecast like economic forecast and traffic forecast. If you're forecasting the future, sometimes things are going to change. And we're going to talk about the importance of people staying tuned and and really looking for those changes as we forecast and communicate with them. It's going to be a great episode today. Again, we're on the GeoTrek podcast. If you're new to the show, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, um, you can help us stay on the air with the GeoTrek podcast by subscribing to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Well, hey, we're getting into wintertime. We're talking about Louisiana and I love food. I love eating. I mentioned gumbo last week. Did you realize there are a lot of different kinds of gumbo? Now, people in northern states sometimes don't know what gumbo is. Gumbo is really like a soup. You put rice and then you have this amazing concoction of great flavors. There's seafood gumbo. Often you'll find chicken and sausage gumbo, but it's really a a winter thing. When the cold weather sets in, people along the I-10 corridor in, in South Louisiana, they say, hey, it's gumbo time. And so pull up a warm bowl of gumbo as the weather cools down and you listen to the second episode of the GeoTrek podcast with Rob Perillo. A more formal introduction of this week's guest, Rob Perillo is the chief meteorologist for KATC TV3's Acadiana's News Channel. Rob has 33 years of experience in forecasting Acadiana's weather and has tracked hundreds of tropical storms and hurricanes during his career, including major Louisiana and Acadiana storms such as Andrew, Lily, Katrina, Rita, Gustav, Ike, Laura, Delta, and Ida. That's a lot of storms that have impacted the region in recent decades. Rob is the most honored meteorologist in Louisiana and the recipient of more than 25 Associated Press awards, including the Best Weathercast, Breaking Weather, and Best Meteorologist categories in Louisiana and Mississippi. Most recently, Rob was nominated for an Emmy Award for hurricane coverage in the year 2020. Rob was named Broadcaster of the Year in 2020 by the National Tropical Weather Conference, was a finalist and the only broadcast meteorologist in the country for Weather Person of the Year in 2021 by the Federal Alliance of Safe Homes. Rob, so great to have you on the GeoTrek podcast. Rob, you you have this intimate knowledge of coastal Louisiana. You have this amazing relationship with the people there for for decades now. So clearly, if there's a powerful storm or a hurricane in the Gulf, probably, you know, thousands of people are reaching out to you. Could you walk us through what does that look like when there's a category whatever storm a day out? Your social media has to be blowing up. I mean, do you just kind of glance through the messages and then try to address the main ones on air? Do you try to personally message people back? I mean, it has to be overwhelming. How do you handle that messaging in the days before a hurricane? Yeah, it is It is overwhelming. And you want to be able to answer everybody and you possibly can't. Uh, there are people, though, that are sending you messages through, uh, uh, through Facebook that are trying to make life decisions on their home 
And I try to, I try to answer those, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll have something sort of get out, please, because I think it's going to be bad or whatever. But I, uh, what I've done in the past, and I'm not sure how well it works, I'll put in a way message like, hey, I'm looking at your messages. I can't respond to each and every one. I'll try to answer as many as I can on our on-air coverage or digital coverage. I'll see those messages and try to do that. But uh, it becomes uh, uh, an exercise in in stamina because I'm up at uh, say eight or nine o'clock in the morning, look at models. I'll go ahead and I'll brief our corporate. Uh, we're owned by Scripps. So I'll be briefing Scripps corporate on what we're expecting and they need to make decisions on building people, hotels, that sort of thing, bringing in extra reporters, producers. Uh, then I get to work and then there's another briefing at uh, 1.30 or two o'clock in the afternoon. And then you're just trying to hit on the major points of the storm and it's very difficult to put together a weather cap because then the engineering may have questions. Hey, what are you expecting wind-wise at the tower and that sort of thing? Uh, and there are it's 16, right? <laughs> it's 16, 18 hour days. And of course you get home at about midnight, take a shower. It's like, well, I guess I'll just wait until the, the GFS and the Euro come in and the Euro comes in at 2 a.m. during daylight savings time. So I'm up till 2, 2.30 a.m. because uh, you, I'm, I'm the type of guy like, yeah, I could look at the model tomorrow morning, the day after. My wife says, well, you can look at that same model tomorrow morning. No, but it's like, Naomi, there's going to be two or three model runs since then. I'm building a culture of what the models are telling us and do, are, are there trending? Yeah, trends. yeah, things right. like that. Right. So uh, uh, that's a typical day. Um, uh, I go back to Hurricane uh, Andrew. That was kind of my first storm that I covered on air and television. And, um, you know, it hit Florida on the weekend and it hit Louisiana two, two, three days later. And I didn't sleep from Sunday night till Tuesday night after the storm passed. Uh, uh, I was I was up for 44 hours straight and you find out a lot about what uh, your what physically happens to you and mentally happens to you when you do not stop. Uh, it's very hard to go to sleep. It's uh, you have a little PTSD going yeah. and, and, and then you finally fall asleep and then your phone rings at eight in the morning. Hey, we got a helicopter uh, lined up. You want to go check out the damage? It's like, what are you going to say? No. And you're out in a helicopter in a uh, hundred degree heat and, and you're not feeling too good, but you're there uh, because you're, you're assessing the damage and, and trying to get a real uh, grip on uh, what happened last night. You find it hard to turn it off too. I mean, you're going 20 hours straight answering life and death questions. It's like, how do you say, okay, I have four hours to sleep. Go, you know, right? <laughs> right. It, it's, it, and, and I will not sleep at the station. Uh, I can't sleep at the station because it's, you know, I'm off shift, the morning show is going and their papers are flying and people are talking overhead on the PA and everything else. So I, I'll, I'll do whatever I can come heck or high water or high winds, get to a hotel room nearby. And I've driven through some pretty gnarly rain bends in, uh, in Hurricane, <laughs> Hurricane Rita, where I, I was in between 80 mile an hour rain bends and got home and, and closed the garage door. And the next thing I know, I'm here, I'm seeing shingles coming off my roof. And, and uh, you know, you're seeing a solid 80, 85, 90 mile an hour gust outside. And uh, it's like, okay, I'm good here for four hours. We'll see how it is in four hours from now. It should be a little better. And then I'll uh, navigate going back to work and, and do it that way. Yeah, so you're doing what you can to protect yourself and keep your audience informed, obviously. It's, uh, it's I think, really admirable what you're doing there. Uh, Rob, I want to ask you, you've, you've won a lot of different awards for excellence in broadcast meteorology. I wish we had time to go through them all, but you've won too many. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you've <laughs> yeah. won too many awards. Which, which award stands out to you as the one that's most meaningful to you and why? Well, um, yeah, that's, you know, I'm going to go right away to uh, the National Tropical Weather Conference. Uh, they, they gave me the John Coleman Award uh, for 2020. Uh, Alex, uh, you know, Alex and, and Tim, who have put on a very good uh, program down at South Padre every year in April. Um, you know, they gave me the uh, John Coleman Award. One, 
if, if John Coleman was such a trailblazer in, in television weather casting from uh, being the first to use chroma key and, and making weather so interesting. And I remember growing up as a kid watching him on GMA, uh, listening to my weather radio, eating my Captain Crunch and watching uh, John Coleman on the air. And they established, you know, a, a, a award for broadcasting. And, uh, and, you know, that when, when it's awarded to you by your peers, your fellow meteorologists, ex-National Hurricane Center directors, uh, people that uh, you're intimately involved with, in, in the meteorological enterprise and see on such a regular basis that uh, a lot of them are very close family and friends to me, uh, that to me meant the most, uh, to be recognized by your peers. Um, uh, it's, it's nice to get the awards. I've never been in this business for awards. I'm competitive. I don't want the other guy to win the award. I want to have, I want to have the more accurate forecast all the time. And I want to cover the storm better than any other guy or girl. Uh, but um, that one to me was really, uh, it, felt, it felt pretty good. It feels like, okay, I guess I'm kind of like the Hal Needhams of the world. You know, somebody who's an expert in my own little realm or whatever. I don't have the PhD, uh, but um, I do have the experience and, and glad that was recognized. And I, I could die tomorrow and be pretty happy about it all. Yeah, that's awesome. The National Tropical Weather Conference, great little community, and congrats <clears throat> on, on winning that. I think it's well-deserved. Um, Rob, I wanted to ask you, too, just with all your experience for broadcasting and, and just doing excellent weather communication through the decades, what advice would you give to a young forecaster coming out today? Well, it's not a job. It's a commitment. You know, a lot of people, you know, we see, whether it's the television world or any of, you know, it's punching in the clock, going in and punching out the clock. Well, uh, meteorology is a whole different animal. Uh, one, you, where you go, you have to get so invested in the community. It's so hard to learn the areas and the uh, local micro and meso meteorology that may interact with the area. And I always say, one, you have to be passionate about it. You can't be, yeah, I'm a meteorologist, but I, I, I like to water ski all the time. Or, you know, that's my real passion, but meteorology is my second passion. It has to be your passion. And in this day and age, which is increasingly harder and harder, is being a master of your information. You know, the old days, it was teletype, Dyfax machines, you had one or two models to work with. It was much simpler times. Nowadays, there is so much information available to you just to make a forecast not even listening to the noise where somebody's posting a 384 hour GFS map on your, on your Facebook page. It is, it is, um, you do have to be really on top of, you know, and defense. Okay. These are the, the main issues that we need to you know, worry about. Yeah. That's a, that, that might be an issue. Uh, rainfall might be an issue, but it's all going to be about wind and storm surge. And then all of a sudden rainfall becomes an issue or whatever. So it's, it's all about staying on top of it, staying, up to date with the, the mesoscale discussions that you get from uh, NA, from uh, the, the WPC or even the, uh, the Storm Prediction Center. And it's, it's going that extra mile, uh, uh, whether it's satellite imagery or just or looking at the trends. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, you know, you got to be 100% all in as much as you can because there are people that are asking you very important questions on whether they should evacuate their mobile home or uh, should get away out of the storm surge. And you want to, you want to provide them with the best knowledge possible. And, yeah. Uh, Rob, you brought up an interesting point too. There's almost too much information now. You almost have to sort through it and say, okay, out of these 15 things people are, t are talking about, these are the two major impacts, right? Right. Right. And, and um, I do two things uh, when I'm presenting on the air. One, I'm, I'm a heavy-duty user of model data. I will show uh, the HER model wind gusts. I'll show uh, uh, we have a proprietary model, a graph model that's produced by IBM. Show the wind gusts and show for each individual city because we always get, well, what is it going to be at my town? What's it going to be at my town? And I might show you an 80-mile-an-hour gust in Crowley, and I might show you on another model, 105-mile-an-hour gust. They both may not happen, but average the two together, that's probably the higher end of what you're going to see coming up. And then I'm a big proponent of writing down, uh, getting a timeline graphic out that shows, okay, what are the major threats? Wind, uh, surge, uh, rain, 
uh, power outages. People, you know, you talk about what the wind is going to do, but you have to uh, humanize that. Well, that's going to take power. That's going to take tree branches down. That means you're going to lose power. And, you know, I try to even use a power outage index that's pr provided by uh, the weather company to show that, you know, be thinking about losing your power and what are you going to do after that? So, I, and I like to put a timeline up there on when you're going to see the highest winds, the highest surge, uh, the, the power outages. Uh, and uh, the rainfall, where is it going to be the worst and when can you expect potential flooding? Uh, and that's a graphic that serves so well, not only on the air, but also it speaks volumes on, on social media as well. So uh, this day and age, you have to find the happy medium of what you're producing on air and how is that going to translate into a digital format as well. Yeah, Rob, it sounds like you like to have a timeline that helps people know uh, how they can prepare and really when they need to prepare. But it sounds like you also like to tie impacts into this as well. Instead of just saying a miles per hour wind speed, tie that into maybe tree branches coming down, power outage going out, things like that. Right. But like you right. said, humanizing the forecast. And well, that is very important. And, that, and whether, whether it's a sunny, gorgeous day, um, there's a beautiful wind, you know, you describe as much as you can on how it's going to impact people. Uh, you know, uh, just the forecast lately, it's cloudy, it's cool here on the Gulf Coast. It's a gloomy weather pattern. This is akin to anything you'll see in December, January, February, where you have the subtropical jets. So kind of a gloomy, chilly pattern. Those who like cold weather, great, but it's also gonna be, there's not gonna be much sun. And I know sooner than later, after a couple of days of cloudy skies, people are, are uh, messaging me, hey, when are we gonna see the sun again? I'm a cane farmer, I wanna get back in the field. I need it to dry out, uh, that sort of thing. So it's always about humanizing the forecast. And I try to be like everybody, the weather nerd at home. And I think we have um, uh, in this area, I've been fortunate enough that we have tons of weather nerds in our audience that uh, see that. And sometimes it's interesting, I'll see the community on a, on a Facebook post adding value, adding to something that I posted that it's like, oh yeah, I should have said something about that, but somebody did say something about that and that's great. So there's, there's, a, there's a little crowdsourcing uh, of uh, not only forecast information, but what's going on right now and what people are seeing. And that is so valuable. So even during our hurricane coverage, I'm not only looking at my inbox, but I'm looking to see, I'm trying to see when I can. It's very hard to do what people are posting on, on my posts and, and are they giving me real time information? Do I have pictures and whether it's a rain gauge or, or the storm surge uh, video? Uh, and then it's always fun to see what uh, there's always people offshore still offshore during these storms and I get some videos, some incredible video from uh, folks offshore that are riding out the storm. And sometimes uh, in the case of Ida last year right in the eye of the storm, uh, just unbelievable that somebody would be riding that out. Rob, so beyond your forecast, you're doing a lot of engagement on social media. What platforms are you on? Uh, primarily, I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, I've always liked Twitter. Um, I don't follow everybody that follows me. I follow maybe a thousand people that are in the uh, meteorological or astronomical or science sphere. Uh, and I leverage that information because it's much more immediate than the Facebook algorithms uh, rather than going back and checking my page or my messages. Uh, Twitter is great for leveraging that information. Uh, Facebook for getting the message out. Uh, and uh, outside of that, I don't do Instagram. Studies say Instagram people want to know more about you, which I have an Instagram page, but it's not a weather page. I never post any kind of forecast data on it. And um, uh, I don't know, TikTok keeps knocking out the door. I, I don't know if I got the time for that, but I think I'll need a social media director if we get to that point, because I can't do it all. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes it's finding that balance. I like that you said it can be inter interactive. You can have good exchanges with your audience, but then at some point it's like, where, where do you draw the line, right? Because there are so many different platforms out there. It becomes really actually an important tool after the storm uh, because power's out, but we are getting people reporting through uh, their cell phones and that sort of thing. So it's always nice uh, to have that information because, you know, you go wall to wall with the storm and you're wall to wall after the storm and the sun is back out, but you're, you're, you're trying to get people out into the field, but you're also getting tremendous amount of feedback. So we know where we need to go in the field, where if they, the worst damages or there's still uh, high water, 
that sort of thing. So it's a great way to crowdsource. I think social media gets such a bad knock uh, and it, rightly so in, in many different realms. Uh, but for me, it's better than waiting from the old lady from Kankton to call up and say that there's a tree on her home because, you know, the phone would ring. It's only uh, one call at a time, whereas Facebook, you're harvesting thousands of points of information in an hour. And the interaction between some of your audience and other people, you said sometimes you'll do a post and someone might add to it or something like that. There's that, that interaction that you can't get on, on phone calls. Rob, when, when, um, for our young professionals out there, graduating from college with a meteorology degree, they're going to get into the industry. What do you think it's going to look like maybe 15 years from now? I mean, what, what skill sets are going to be most important for them? You know, I've been asked that question like once over uh, for the last three decades, because, you know, we, we, we see it all going to digital for sure. Um, broadcast television uh, is, is losing ground in, in a lot of markets. In Lafayette, it hasn't really done so much. That's, that's because we're a bedroom community. Everybody knows everybody. And um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of enigma uh, in the TV business. But uh, where, where the, you know, we, we, we've moved to digital. We have .com, the web. Uh, social media is a very important part of it. If you're getting started in the business, you want to develop a social media following. Uh, but where I see things go going is over to what's called OTT, over the top uh, digital, where whether you have a Roku, whether you have the KTC weather app, whether you have Apple TV or Android or whatever, uh, consuming our information uh, just like it's running on television. It's not quite there yet. We're, we're, we're looping. Uh, we repeat newscasts. We do have add new content during the course of the day, but I see all of our thrust going into that uh, OTT space uh, because this is the first uh, digital space that they can monetize better. We can't monetize social media. Uh, not that we're here to make money. We're here just to pay salaries to keep the operation going and maybe turn a little bit of a profit. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the over-the-top uh, uh, transmission is where things are going. So uh, all the uh, digital apps, just like people are cutting the cord on cable or direct TV, or um, they're getting our signal via antenna, so that's free. Uh, but it's, it's about getting the information in a much more useful form. And the, and the phone is, is turned into our primary uh, digital source of information, more so than the television. Uh, anybody that's under 40, for sure. Rob, when you talk about digital and OTT, you're talking about eventually getting away maybe from a broadcast on a TV and more on phones and, and tablets and things like that. Yeah, I don't know about that. I still think there's still space uh, to deliver uh, over the air 4K uh, uh, picture and entertainment. I think, uh, you know, how many people are looking at using their phone and then, and then streaming it to their big TV. So the TV is not going anywhere because you got that a big screen. It's sure. how you get the informa information and the conduit of that information. So I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not an expert in the TV business. I just know that digital is very, very important. And I love it too, because I get to send out updates through the phone. And, and sure. on a good month, we have maybe seven or eight million impressions on the phone, which is, which is certainly monetizable. Uh, I don't know if we're monetizing it. I, I don't care, but I like it because I'm getting information out and to people's phones. It does sound like a broadcast meteorology is a rapidly changing field. You have to at least stay in touch with the changes in technology and stay up to pace with it. But what I love about it too, on the other aspect, the science doesn't change, right? Physics is physics. What drives Correct. the atmosphere is gonna be the same 200 years from now. So that element is really cool. I think for our, for our undergrad studying meteorology, that, that physics, math, meteorology, all that stuff, that's not gonna change, which is cool. Uh, yeah, it's not gonna change. And there are gonna be folks that are gonna uh, just bag doing television and just do digital uh, digital stuff whether it's podcasts whether it's uh, a website that provides video updates i always love levi cohen's page on tropical tidbits when he, he's putting out a blurb and i see that being not only uh, more important but maybe uh, monetizable as well and i think uh uh be uh you know for people are starting out i i you know i i barely made it through fortran and assembly language i kind of majored in computer science for uh, a, a sick 
six uh, six two semesters, you know, I, I was just sick. Like, I gotta be, I'm not gonna be a meteorologist and get paid one quarter of what these computer guys are getting paid. That was my thinking in college. Uh, but uh, learn a little code if you need to. Um, I think that's really, really important. And and be a master of, of uh, you know, there are people that are really good on TikTok and, and, and on uh, Instagram, but, uh, and who knows what platforms are going to be coming down in the future. Uh, TikTok seems to be garnering a lot of attention these days, but it takes a lot of time to produce too. And I don't have that time. So I, I'm hoping I can retire before I have to succumb to the TikTok crowd. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I will do it if, if, if it means getting information out to the, to, the, to the most possible people and the people that may least understand tropical systems or the younger people that, have, you know, they remember storms as kids and they were fun until you own a house and you have a piece of property that you have to worry about protecting. Sure, that, that's true. That changes everything, whether it's hurricanes, mm -hmm. snowstorms, whatever. A lot of this stuff's fun when it's a week off of school, but all of a sudden right. when it's your house in the crosshairs, it's a little different, right? So, that is correct. I didn't care as much about Hurricane Andrew because I lived in an apartment. I had a keyboard, a sofa, and a TV. If it goes, it goes. I can replace that. Now I have a house. I have, you know, you have so much more to protect. So, uh, and, and, and when, when it comes to our line of work, we got to be more prepared than the general public because we get sucked into 20 hour shifts and then nothing's getting done in my home. We're not getting them, you know, but we, uh, my wife is very good about, uh, we get our hurricane supplies at the beginning of the summer. We get cases upon cases of water. I, I have my generator ready to go, my window unit on my AC ready to go. So I'm prepared every season. Uh, if we lose our roof, we lose our roof. Uh, but that, you know, that's, that's everybody's that way. So, um, you can prepare to a certain degree, but you do have to be prepared for uh, long hours and no help for days. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, Rob, we've covered a lot and you've given a lot of very practical and useful insights, not only in meteorology, but also just living in hurricane country and in a disaster prone place. I hear a lot of uh, perspective on just being prepared and not waiting to the last minute, getting out ahead. And I think this is true for meteorologists, but also for first responders and people that ha during a disaster, they have to be working, right? That's not the time when right. they can be preparing their house. They have to be on the job. I think meteorologists definitely fall into that as, as well as other professions as well. Yeah, and one of the things is kind of uh, just a, a side thought here, but just talking about emergency preparedness officials and how they have to be prepared. I think we need to do a better job of, you know, a post Ian better job of transmitting what is a four to seven foot storm surge going to look like uh, on the west coast of Florida, which in some areas it turned out to be a 12 or 15 foot storm surge. And not only get the emergency managers to understand that, but get that to the general public. Okay, now we're issuing an evacuation. Why? Because the roads are going to be impassable. We're not going to be able to come save you if the water gets up into your home. And I, I think uh, there's going to be a little bit of uh, uh, introspective thinking uh, post-hurricane uh, Ian on the, on the Florida coast uh, because, uh, you know, every meteorologist knew it was going to be a bad situation for a large chunk of that west coast of Florida. And and being able to go back to humanizing the forecast. What does it mean? You're going to have hit deep water in your street and maybe a foot of water in your home. Do you want to stay for that or do you want to get out? And of course, yeah. in some, some areas, it was a lot worse than that. Rob, that was one of the big lessons I learned. I'm so used to giving a range of feet of water and maybe I learned after Ian, we need to make this descriptive, you know, that not only is this so much water mm -hmm. over the ground and in your house, but it's it's fast moving seawater full of debris and full of pollutants. And I, I began to realize, wow, people don't understand what this is even about. If you're mentioning eight feet of water, their frame of reference, maybe they're thinking the deep end of a swimming pool. That's all nice and clear and right. But that's not what this is about. It's very right. different. Yeah, there's massive current, there's massive waves. Um, and, and, you know, Louisiana, I think we, we know what storm surge is all about, but you look at that part of Florida hasn't been impacted by a big storm in a long time. You have a lot of transplants that have moved down there. And I think 
um, um, and I'm sure uh, uh, in the TV business, as we follow up in the in the future, is that uh, we're we're going to hit on those things because we had a nice trend of uh, storm surge fatalities diminishing over the last decade, 15 years. Jamie Rome has been a great part of that uh, with the uh, storm surge warnings and and inundation levels, and we're still trying to figure out how to uh, depict inundation levels the best we can in television, uh, but uh, but also making that translatable. Uh, and that, that I always uh, like the Weather Channel when they do their graphics on what six feet of water looks like in their immersive augmented reality environment. And I think that's what people need to see. Um, and how does that, what does six feet of water look in my street? Uh, the cars are completely buried. You're not going anywhere. So you are going to be on your own island for days at a time. Yeah, those computer animations, I think, to, to just visualize what this looks like, people can begin to say, wow, do I really want to stay for this? Exactly, exactly. Rob, we covered a lot today. Uh, really, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Right before we sign off, any last big pictures, uh, anything to leave our audience with? Um, yeah, you know, you, you were, I, I was thinking about that. It's personal responsibility. You know, um, we, we hear about a storm. The storm is heading in this location four days out. I'm not going to worry about the storm, and I'm done thinking about it, uh, whereas uh, it's, it's, it's on you. You owe it to your spouse, your significant others, your family, your, your parents, your grandparents to know that things change in meteorology. And what we might've said three or four days ago is it's a completely different story two days ago uh, or yesterday or what we're talking about today. That was yesterday. There's nothing more useless than an old forecast when you have new data and data that supports a forecast uh, that you can't uh, just assume that it's not going to be a big issue. Uh, I know you talked about that uh, in your last podcast, how uh, people tend to get something that, okay, I'm not in danger, so I feel better about it, and I'm not going to be as invested in staying on top of that information. But the onus is on uh, you, uh, the citizen, to know what's going on, because uh, not everybody in your neighborhood is going to know. You're going to be the town crier. You're going to be the street crier. It's, hey, uh, you know, Perillo was saying, we're going to have four feet of water in the street. To, are you staying or, or you know, and, and that sort of thing. And, and just trying to get, uh, I mean, we, we, we do all this social meteorology, whether it's social media or understanding uh, social uh, interactions and, and the psychology of transmitting information. And that's where a lot of work is being done in, in the weather enterprise. But it's still what do people do with that information once they get it? Or are they just tuning it out after they've already decided uh, how the storm is going to be in their location? And, and I, I always say hurricanes and severe weather events are like a box of chocolates. We have a pretty good idea what we're going to get, but it, it's like you really don't know what you're going to get until you have the chocolate. Uh, you know, there's something that always rears its ugly head where, well, that was a factor I knew could be a major factor and it turned out to be a major factor or, you know, uh, and, you know, you do a postmortem on any, any storm on how well did I cover this or how well did I miss this or, or, or that sort of thing. But the onus has to be on the consumer on the other end on, on taking action and it's on us to suggest the actions that need to be taken. Rob, you touched on the concept of anchoring there, where people hear a first message, they decide that's right. the way it, they, they decided on Tuesday they're not leaving, and there's nothing you could tell them on Thursday to change their mind. That's where a lot of people can die or get in really bad situations, right? Because they predetermined, maybe based on an early forecast, what they're going to do, and they're not going to change their mind. That is correct, and, and that happens uh, in any day and time. Uh, you know, I have a 10 day forecast. I used to have a seven day forecast, but no, all the apps are doing 10 days. Well, I guess we got to get in that realm. And my day eight, nine, 10 forecast is going to be better than an app forecast, but not by much. Uh, but people will complain, hey, man, you were going for 20% on the week on Saturday, six days from now. And now you're telling me it's a 50% chance. Uh, well, you know, it's looking very likely that we're going to have rain. In fact, I might want to say it looks like an 80% chance, but you know, you're doing the stats and the, the time away from the forecast. So people complain when you just change the forecast one day to the other. So there's the amount of education that we need to do. Well, hey, we have new data. That new data we have to uh, put into our 
our, our forecast now, and that new data supports this. The data that we were showing you yesterday doesn't support that, so I'm not going to stay with a 20% chance of rain on Saturday just because I was going with it yesterday, you know, that sort of Rob, thing. Do you, some of these models now will run out. You get your 384-hour. I mean, it, it's crazy. It's two weeks out in the future. Do you put right. a? Do you try to only show, like, so many days just because you don't want people to get fixated on a model 10 days out in the future that probably will not verify? Yeah, it depends. Most of the times, uh, well, I'll show the GFS or the Euro maybe out seven days, but I'm not showing that unless I've been looking at the ensemble members. I've been looking at data that supports the deterministic solution. So, uh, and I, I don't try to show it maybe specifically as a hurricane. I'll just show, uh, look at the precipitable water. Look the way it's pooling here in the Northwest Caribbean, and then it gets more globular in the Gulf of Mexico in seven or eight days. So there could certainly be something up. I do like to uh, let people know that I'm dialed in. I'm looking at the 10-day forecast. Anything beyond 10 days, though, is ridiculous. Uh, seven, to, seven to 10 is even It sounds like you'll crazy. give them a heads up. Something in general may happen, but in, in very general terms, not to fixate right. on a on something that may happen a week from now or something. And I, I never try, I never show, um, I try not to a, any storm making landfall anywhere. So say there's a hurricane that's going to make landfall in seven days on the upper Texas coast. I'll stop my model at six days where the storm is somewhere in the central Gulf of Mexico, because that's, that's the fairest point that you can bet on. Uh, and you don't want to, you don't want to definitively start that whole feedback mechanism where people anchor on that one forecast. We saw that with Rita, oh, um, you know, so, um, so you I, I, five or six days out, we're looking right. at a major hurricane in the Western Gulf. And even if the model runs show it making landfall in Galveston or Beaumont, or you, you'll hold back from that because you don't want them to say, oh, it's going to Texas, right? That, that is correct. That is correct. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes you get, uh, the, it's, it's meteorological nirvana when the GFS and the Euro are on the same page and they're showing the exact same feature seven or eight days out. Well, then I'll push it that far out. But uh, uh, yeah, anything beyond that um, and in the wintertime, forget about it. Uh, you know, much of the U.S. is the same way. Uh, you know, there are just too many changes. The subtropical jet stream will bite you every each and every winter uh, and it does each and every winter uh, so uh, the whole idea is just to develop you know and I, we talked about this earlier uh, you know you're developing and Dr. Gray used to call this a culture of understanding the models you know you're developing a culture of what is going to occur and that at least I think gives me an advantage in forecasting it at least staying with uh, some of my contemporaries who are, are very good synopticians and don't do what I do for a living they're they're deep in the weeds of, of, of the thermodynamics of the atmosphere is I, I'm kind of out less of that and more about translating that information to the viewer at home. Rob, what I like of what you're saying, it's not just cut and dry, like you have a rule, like you'll show the model out four or five days. It sounds like you're really customizing this. You're trying to understand this culture of models and, and how things are lining up. Sometimes, obviously, we have a lot more confidence than others. And it sounds like right. you, you incorporate all of that into not only how you're forecasting, but what you're sharing with the viewer. And I don't think it's wrong to say, hey, this is a low confidence forecast. A lot of people, you know, when you get into television, be sure of yourself, exude confidence. And I do. I'm confident in my forecast, but I want to let people know that if we're entering a, a, a situation where, well, there, uh, my confidence in the forecast is actually below normal because I think there's a myriad of things that can happen. Ed Piotrowski in, in South Carolina does a good job where he does uh, different uh, hurricane scenarios. One, it goes out to sea. Two, it goes to the west, the one it comes this way, what's the most likely, that sort of thing. That, I think that's really good value. Uh, but uh, just about every system that comes in the Gulf of Mexico looks to come to Louisiana half the time. So uh, we don't have too many options. And two of the three options are going to be very bad for us. An uh, option hitting Louisiana, option hitting Texas, we could have the same dang effects. Uh, whereas a storm maybe hitting over by the Florida panhandle, we could have sunny skies and not a drop of rain. Well, Rob, look, talking about confidence, look at Hurricane Ian, a large, powerful, slow-moving hurricane coming into the shallow waters of the west coast of Florida. I would say nearly 100% confidence that somewhere is going to get hammered by a monster storm surge. Will it be your oh, zip yes. code? That's where we start to get less confidence, but somewhere is going to get it. And I think breaking down the forecast into this is what we're confident. You know, maybe, maybe we have less, less confidence in the exact track. 
but right. somewhere near and to the right of that track uh, almost certainly is going to get a big surge, you know, kind of breaking down for viewers what we're certain about and what we're not certain about. No, absolutely. And when you say this confidence, this is going to be a high end event for someone. I think people pay a little bit more attention. Yeah, I think people got a little fixated on the cone, a little fixated on the, the line. I draw the line myself because I like to see how the line moves and our viewers here know what the difference between uh, 50 miles makes a huge difference in where the storm is going, you know, at landfall, uh, 50 miles away from the 60 miles away from the eye is a lot be better than being 20 or 30 miles away from the eye by a magnitude, a magnitude of, you know, four or eight or 10 or 12 times when you're talking about damage and impacts. Rob, I, I, our, our listeners are just going to eat this stuff up. This, we've covered enough content here. I, I'm hoping we can make this into two podcast episodes, actually. I appreciate you taking so much time and <laughs> your experience. I mean, we covered a lot from tropical meteorology to snowfall in upstate New York. We covered a lot on the show today. How can people find you, uh, lastly, online? How can people, if they want to follow you, if they want to follow your forecast, how can they find you? Sure. I'm on KTC TV in Lafayette. So KTC.com uh, social media wise, it's just Rob Perillo. Um, and on, on uh, Facebook, it's the Rob Perillo. Um, and uh, you can find me that way. And um, you know, if you just search uh, uh, short uh, balding meteorologist in Southern Louisiana, my name should come up as well. Rob, I just figured out why you had so much time to spend with us today. This was the first year in like 25 years that Louisiana hasn't had a major hurricane. You probably don't know what to do with all your time. I've had lots of projects ongoing, but we did not even get a whiff of a tropical disturbance. That happened a few years ago as well. It's so interesting where all, you know, uh, between 2019 and 2021, we had 10 storms, five majors, and a couple of tropical depressions thrown in in between. And then this year, we didn't even get a tropical wave. Not that I'm complaining. What does uh, that but, feel like just having such a, a year off, basically, in that sense, right, of not well, having have heightened forecasting? Well, you know, everything works out for a reason. We actually just redid our studio at KETC, so I had to move my entire weather department out of an old studio into a conference room during the month of September, and knowing that this is the worst time of year to do it. It was a project that we were going to start in June, but it got pushed back, supply chain issues, but we got to get it done. Okay. And then I got all my systems back into the new studio. We started broadcasting from there like the first week of October. And, you know, I, I, I received what I asked for a quiet season because uh, I had so many other projects going on the side. So uh, sometimes it works out in your favor and, and, uh, and you have a quiet season, even though the forecast was for a busy season, the metrics were up there. And I think uh, we'll, I'm looking forward to the research uh, that shows us uh, how, how did we wind up with a normal season with a La Nina. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, if, if you want to start talking philosophically, I think that uh, big heat dome in the West and up towards Canada took away the need for the tropics to take excessive heat away from the tropics and send it to a northern latitude because the heat was already there. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be really interested to find out uh, why the forecast didn't pan out, but we still had a major hurricane hit the United States, and I don't want to minimize, when, and, and it comes back to home. It just only takes one storm at your location to make it a horrible season. That is true. If, if that storm hits you, it was a busy season or it was a, it was a um, catastrophic season in, in some cases. Uh, Rob, it sounds like of all seasons to be a quiet one, this was a good one for you in Louisiana. Best wishes to you and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you at the National Tropical Weather Conference online and, and hopefully in person as well. Thanks for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. Thanks so much, Hal. Thanks for having, having me again and uh, look forward to our next visit for sure. Rob, ça c'était très magnifique. Tu as bien fait, mon ami. That was really great stuff there, Rob. You did really well on this podcast. You gave me a lot to think about. I think our listeners are going to love this content. I wanted to dig a little deeper into three things that Rob had shared. And the first is how he responds to social media. Boy, the landscape has really changed in science communication and weather forecast communication over the past decades. We know the rise of social media has really revolutionized communication in, on many platforms. I know some people love social media, some people hate it. Someone just told me last week, I really hate Facebook. I know people feel that way, but 
in the weather world, in um, broadcast communication, science communication, social media is everywhere. And so it was really interesting. I know for some of us, it's a huge platform to reach people, but it can also be really overwhelming. I like that Rob painted that picture of what it's like for him as a Gulf Coast weather forecaster when there's, say, a hurricane in the Gulf, how he's working maybe 18 to 20-hour days, still checking the models at 2 a.m., and he hasn't even gone to bed yet, and he has to get up early to brief his audience. It's just you're working around the clock, and then I know what it's like to, to pull those days and then notice you have nine new messages on Facebook Messenger and just overwhelmed. You can't get to it all. I really like how he said that he scans through the messages. He may reply personally to some life-and-death decisions decisions, but then he'll put in a way message and he'll do his best to maybe address some of the major concerns on air. So in other words, it, it sounds like if he's getting a lot of inquiries about a certain parish, a certain area, maybe a certain hazard like storm surge or heavy rainfall flooding, he'll try to address that on air. It sounds like he's really going through social media, using that to get a pulse of his audience, and then trying his best to communicate and reply back to people personally if he can, if not to address it on the air. I really like that approach a lot. And that's something that I think I want to incorporate as well. He mentioned as well a little comment here that I thought was interesting, how sometimes he may forget to say something on a Facebook post or on social media, but then someone in his audience will mention that. And that's something about social media, if you think about it. Back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, a weather forecaster was really on screen doing a monologue. It was all them communicating with their audience and no communication back from the audience and no interaction. With social media now, one of the nice things, if we create and we foster this community, this, this environment for dialogue and exchange of information, as we grow our audience, we may forget to say something in the forecast, like for example, maybe there's flood water over part of a major road and we forgot to mention that in the forecast. Someone in our audience may mention that on a comment in the social media feed. And so as we create this, this interactive culture, I think there's really an exchange of information that goes both ways. And sometimes even two listeners on our audience will be responding to each other in a, in a healthy, constructive way. Social media really gives this ability for a lot of dialogue and a lot of interaction. And it reminds me too, I don't need to do a perfect forecast. I can go back and add comments or I can I can still interact with people if there's something that I forgot to mention in my original forecast, which is what Rob uh, touched base on. And I thought that was really great insights for our audience to hear. A second topic that Rob touched on in this, in this interview was the importance of humanizing the forecast. So if we're communicating wind speed is going to be certain miles an hour or the flood water is going to be a certain depth. What does that mean? What are those impacts? I think the more that we can really connect forecasts to impacts, that's really going to help people out a lot. So a hurricane's coming in or say a tropical storm, sustained winds of 65 miles an hour. What does that mean? Right. And he even mentioned that he'll get into talking about maybe tree falls or power outages, maybe structural damage on homes, but trying to help people really paint a picture of what this means for them, uh, whether it's a wind forecast, flood forecast or, or something else. Imagine you're a weather forecaster in Colorado and we're expecting a, a big early season snowfall. Well, are the ski resorts going to open and, and you know start an earlier season or not? I know ski culture is huge in the Rocky Mountains. So people may be wondering, wow, already a big snowstorm in October. Are the ski resorts going to open up? If you can tie the forecast and an extreme weather event into impacts, whether that's negative impacts or even positive impacts like skiing in a, in a ski area, that can really help people get a context for this, what this means for them and their lives. And that's really what climatology and climate science is all about. It's all about painting context uh, for what this weather event, what does this mean? How unusual is it? And how does this change things? I remember when I moved to the Gulf Coast, I was living in Baton Rouge. And I think one night there was a forecast for some drizzle and mist with a low temperature of 31 degrees. I, I grew up in northern states that didn't seem really that strange or exceptional at all. It shut down South Louisiana because they don't have a lot of plows. They don't, they don't really salt the roads or the bridges. And so 31 degrees with mist and fog... Uh, can really ice up the bridges. And there are a lot of bridges in South Louisiana. So that just really like shut down all of society, uh, even though it was, you know, misty and some freezing drizzle at 31. 
So the more that we can really paint the picture of what this means, that can help people interpret the forecast. And keep in mind, the United States, we have a very mobile, transient society. So if you're, say, a forecaster in your area, you may say, well, this is obvious to everyone what this means. But think of the new people that maybe moved to your area that haven't been there for an ice storm before, haven't been there for a snowstorm or a hurricane. So it's always good to remember people may be visiting on vacation, people may be new to the area. So again, South Louisiana, 31 degrees, I didn't even think that would be a big deal. It really shut down society for a whole morning. And it makes sense, right? Why have a lot of snow plows when you get maybe one or two freezes a year that, that maybe shut down some bridges? So the more that we can tie to the impacts, the better. Rob really did a great job of explaining the importance of that, how he tries to do that, really stay engaged with his audience and try to paint a picture of what this weather forecast means. Lastly, I really like what Rob shared about the personal responsibility people have to stay updated, especially on a, on a forecast that has a lower confidence. You know, sometimes we have a very high confidence forecast. We see higher pressure, high pressure setting over our area. We know it's going to be a sunny day, light winds, almost 100% chance we're going to nail that. Other times, the forecast gets quite complex and there might be low confidence. Things may change. And he mentioned, you know, to encourage the audience, stay tuned on certain forecasts. We have less confidence in this or the model show disagreement. So we can expect some changes. Stay tuned. That's so important, I think. And we saw this a lot with Hurricane Ian this last year, that the original forecast showed landfall north of Tampa, really impacting the Tampa metro area. A lot of people in Fort Myers had Tampa on the brain and said, hey, this storm is going to be a Tampa event. And all of a sudden, things changed, things shifted. And I like that Rob mentioned that data change. As new data and information come in, we update our model and we update our forecast. And he mentioned too that, that he will communicate to his audience, it's really their responsibility to stay tuned and to stay updated with that. I think of when I've flown on airplanes, you know, sometimes we get, we check in to a flight and we get a, we get a boarding pass and it shows the gate number. And sometimes we see that gate number and check out. I know sometimes people have nearly missed flights because the gate changed and they just had in their brain, they looked down once, they didn't stay in touch with the latest information. They didn't keep looking at the screens. When we travel and we fly, it's good to keep an eye on those screens because sometimes the gate changes, right? Things change and it's our responsibility to stay tuned for those changes. This was a really good reminder of Rob that, that we need to, for our science communicators, for our meteorologists out there, encourage our audience, especially on a low confidence forecast, stay tuned, things may change. And Rob does a great job of explaining why there's uncertainty in the forecast, what the models are saying, and trying to unpack that a little bit for the viewership so they can understand not only what the forecast is, but how confident the forecaster is in that and how things may change, keeps them engaged, keep, keeps them tied in so that they're not blindsided if things change. Rob, thank you so much again for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. We got a lot out of this two-part series with you, learning a lot about how to communicate the weather, how to stay engaged with your audience, and really communicate high-impact forecasts that, that touch a lot of people and can help people make great decisions. Thanks to our listeners for staying tuned to GeoTrack. I know we have listeners all over the country, and uh, this is really going to wrap up a lot of our, our podcast focused on hurricanes. We've been very hurricane-heavy over the last several months, uh, in, in part, obviously, because it was hurricane season, and we just have so many great communicators like Rob and others that, that are engaged with audiences along the Gulf Coast and the Southeast U.S. Coast. We're going to pivot next week. We're going to go underground. That's right. We're going to talk about sinkholes, caves, fissures, tunnels in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. We're going to do a two-part series on what happens when the ground opens up underneath your buildings, your roads. It's going to be really interesting new episodes of GeoTrek podcast that are going to get into some different hazards. So, But uh, Rob, what you shared on this podcast, I think, relates to people that deal with any hazards and any disasters, whether you're in tornado country, big snow country, earthquake country, this concept of understanding our risks and how to communicate that, that never gets old. And that's something we love to focus on here on the GeoTrek podcast. Special thanks to our marketing and development and publicity team. Uh, many of them are based in South Alabama, but we have really partners all over the country that help us to uh, get this message out and to uh, really develop these podcasts as well. But special thanks to our GeoTrek team that does a great job every week helping to disseminate this podcast. And especially Jeremiah Long, he works with me every week, putting a lot of music to it, editing the audio, and he does an amazing job of making this sound very professional and cleaning up where I make mistakes. On behalf of GeoTrek, this is Dr. Hal. I'll be back with you next week with this two-part episode on sinkholes, caves, and when, what happens when the ground opens up underneath us. This is Dr. Hal signing off from the GeoTrek podcast.